Isaiah chapter 11 is where we pick up this evening. And you'll remember last time at the end of our study together in chapter 10, as we were concluding our time together there, God was speaking through the prophet Isaiah, particularly pronouncing judgment uh, and his displeasure towards the pride of not only his own people, Israel, as well as the southern kingdom of Judah. Again, remember, this is the time, that period of the divided nation where you have the northern kingdom of Israel, often referred to as Ephraim, as well as the southern kingdom of Judah. And God particularly was speaking about not only the pride that they were struggling with in their rebellion, but then God also began to speak a pronouncement of judgment against the pride of Assyria. And that was because, if you remember, the Assyrian nation would come and they would greatly devastate the northern kingdom. Ultimately, they would conquer the southern, uh, excuse me, the northern kingdom of Israel, 722 BC. And then they would bring great damage and harm to the southern kingdom of Judah as well, would basically work their way up to the doorstep of Jerusalem and would look like that they were going to conquer and completely wipe out God's people. But yet God in his merciful intervention spoke of how he would restrain Assyria, though they were being used as God's instrument, that he would restrain them and keep them from bringing about the ultimate destruction of his chosen people. Again, because certainly we understand through the line of Judah is ultimately the line of Christ and the messianic uh, line being preserved by God in his mercy, despite really the rebellion and the pride of his own people. And so God had been speaking about how he was going to humble the Assyrians, how he was going to intervene and strike them, and that the Israelites did not have to worry and fear, though it looked like in the threatening circumstances they would be utterly destroyed, as we see three different times in Isaiah's prophecy, as well as in the records of Kings and Chronicles, that incredible intervention that God brought, whereas the Assyrians were surrounding the city of Jerusalem, it tells us that one night an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 Assyrian troops. Uh, and in one evening, that's all it took. Didn't even take God a whole day. In one evening, God brought a complete turn of events and instantaneously resolved a problem that looked like it was something that was an absolute destruction and the end of all things. And in one night, God just said, enough is enough. <laughs> And he intervened, and with one angel, and keep in mind, one angel, and it doesn't even tell us it was Michael the archangel or Gabriel, you know, one of the angels that we think of with higher ranking and great power, just one angel, Bob or, or Frank. God just sends out one angel and wipes out 185,000 of the enemies of God's people, preserves the nation of Judah and Jerusalem, and speaking about this as God was concluding the 10th chapter, and it ties into where chapter 11 flows into, the last two verses we read there of chapter 10, if you'll glance back, it says, Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will lop off the bough, picturing here the idea of cutting down a forest, so this is the imagery, lop off the bough with terror, those of high stature will be hewn down, and the haughty will be humbled. So God was going to break the pride of the Assyrians, of the king of Assyria as well. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with the iron. The picture there is like an axe just going through and with a sharp axe just felling all the trees and just chopping down the entire forest. And Lebanon will fall 
by the mighty one. So God would bring about this great humbling process in twofold. One, of his own people, they would be greatly humbled and they would be greatly devastated and that was because of their own pride, but God would also humble the Assyrians. So you're left with this picture of God humbling the haughty, God leaving like a forest that's now been cut down and you just have a bunch of stumps of trees that are left there and it looks like, okay, the entire forest has been in a sense, leveled. Uh, There's no use to that anymore. It doesn't look like any good could come out of it. And it's in connection to that imagery that chapter 11 picks up now with this beautiful prophecy of the Messiah. And notice that God says here, there shall come forth a rod from the stem. The picture there is like a stump. So you picture a stump. If you ever had a tree taken down in your yard or if you've seen a tree that's been cut down, just kind of the stump that's left, and how sometimes some life will bud out of a stump of a tree. That's the picture here, just a tiny little bit of life budding out of just the stem or the stump of a tree. He says, from the stem of Jesse and a branch, and that should be capitalized because it's a reference to the Messiah himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, a branch shall grow out of his roots. So we get this prophetic reference now to how out of what looks like something that has been completely humbled and devastated, even the Lord's people in Judah there, looking like just a bunch of stumps of trees, that all of a sudden now this very small growth begins to bud forth out of the stump. And particularly, you notice, it says out of the stem or the stump of Jesse. And again, the idea is the family of Jesse. And we know from other passages further back that we've already studied through in the Old Testament here together, that Jesse was the father of David, uh, and, and that this was the line of David. It was through that family line that Jesse, remember, had multiple sons. One of them was David, and it was ultimately through the family line of David. Second Samuel chapter 7 tells us that through David's line, the Davidic family line, that was how the bloodline of the Messiah would ultimately come to pass as far as Jesus' earthly life. So this is making a connection to really the, the humility And the humanity of Jesus, how he entered into this world, how when God came to this earth, became flesh, again, the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was always in heaven forever with the Father, with the Holy Spirit, took upon himself a second nature. He added to his divinity, humanity, entering in in this very humble way, coming through the family line of Jesse and the root of David. And notice it describes how he would be like a branch that would grow out of the roots of those very humble beginnings. And we do see this reference on occasion. We've seen it once already, and it's one of the common terms describing Jesus' humanity, his earthly life as a man, is this idea of referring to him as a branch. And And I think it's a very fitting picture because the branch speaks of the aspect of humility. Uh, just a, a branch. And, and I like the picture of a branch as well, that that metaphor is used for Jesus as the Messiah, because think what a branch is. Technically, a branch is an extension from the source, right? A branch of a tree, a branch of a bush is an extension from the source. And technically, we can say that that is exactly what Jesus was. Jesus was God who became flesh, and in a sense, Jesus was the, in his earthly life, he was the extension of heaven, he was the extension of God into humanity as God from heaven 
extended himself, made himself available to humanity as a man. And Jesus, as that humble branch coming as a man, extended to us the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God and all the things that Christ brought as he dwelt among us as God living in the flesh. And I like that idea of not only the the humility being described of his human nature, but that that is exactly what his earthly life was. It was that branch-like extension, God's way of extending himself to us, making himself available and doing what he did for us. Now, as Jesus lived that earthly life as a man, understand that he chose during that time to function not only as a perfect man in his sinless life so that he might become the ultimate sacrifice and the, the Passover lamb of God for us to take away the sin of the world, but Jesus, in his perfection and his humanity, also chose to live in perfect, complete dependence as a man, fully as a man, upon the Father in heaven, relying fully upon the Father in heaven as he lived out his humanity among us. And so because of that, verse 2, going on to speak about Jesus and his earthly life as the Messiah coming, it tells us of this branch, the Messiah, who Isaiah's prophesying would come, verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord, of Yahweh God, Jehovah God, shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now, this happened, if you remember, Matthew chapter 3 describes the account, the other gospels do as well, when we see Jesus in his humanity, Coming to John the Baptist, remember when John was baptizing people for the repentance of their sins and telling them to repent and to prepare themselves for the kingdom of God and that the Messiah was coming and that they should be repenting and turning of their sins. It was a baptism of preparedness for the ultimate Messiah and salvation. It wasn't Christian baptism. It was a baptism of repentance to ready themselves for the ultimate salvation that Christ was going to bring to them to identify Jesus. And it was in the midst of those things that, remember, John, to his surprise, ultimately sees Jesus coming towards him and asking, in a sense, wanting to submit himself to this baptism of John to identify with humanity, to fully identify with us as sinful people, as weak human beings, that he was the solution for such, and John, remember, began to struggle with that. And he said, baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, permit this to be so for its fulfillment of all righteousness. And remember, when Jesus was then water baptized, identifying with humanity as the Savior in that moment, as the solution for what they've been looking for, remember, the Bible tells us that three things happen. It says the heavens parted. It says the Spirit did what? came down and rested upon him in the form of a dove, the Bible describes, and the father spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So God in that moment of Christ's baptism, he parts the heavens, the Holy Spirit, as look what verse two says, comes and rests upon Jesus. He now comes upon Jesus. The spirit comes upon Jesus's earthly life to empower him, to fully anoint him for his public ministry that he would then enter into for the three and a half years leading up into his crucifixion and resurrection. Prior to that time, Jesus for 30 years, in essence, lived in a lot of ways in somewhat of relative obscurity. 
He functioned like every other person. He worked a trade and certainly lived a righteous life. But it was at this moment now the father was clearly publicly identifying, this is my son. This is the one that you've been waiting for, looking for. Hear him, pay attention to him. And it was in that moment the spirit came upon Jesus to, in a sense, empower him and anoint him for the particular ministry that he would accomplish in his humanity. And here, Isaiah describes in verse 2, this what we often refer to as sort of the sevenfold ministry description here of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Now, certainly, I don't think when I say a sevenfold ministry being described here of the Spirit, that that is an exhaustive list of all the ways that the Spirit of God manifests himself in the different ways that he operates. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that the Holy Spirit manifests himself in different ways, even today, through different gifts and the operation of gifts, through believers, through our lives. So the Holy Spirit can manifest his ministry, the things that he does in different ways as he works through lives. But here we have a sevenfold reference, seven things particularly seem to be described, that it is the Spirit, called to as the Spirit of the Lord. First of all, is the Spirit of Yahweh, Jehovah himself, that is in all the fullness of who Yahweh God is, Jesus walked in those things, represented those things. It also said here that it was, and then you have the couplets, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. And perhaps likely why we have sort of this sevenfold reference to different manifestations of how the Holy Spirit operated in his different ministries and functions through even Jesus's life, is as we've talked about before, seven in the scriptures is always the number of completion. Uh, again, there are seven days in a week, seven notes in a scale. So when we see seven represented in the Bible, it's a reference to completion or fullness. So the picture here is that Jesus operated in all the fullness of the Holy Spirit's power. John chapter 3, you might want to jot into your notes there. There you have a, a reference in John 3, 34, where speaking of the Father giving the Spirit to Jesus, particularly it says that the Father gave the Spirit to Jesus, and he says that, that it, he did not give the Spirit with measure. In other words, it wasn't just a measured portion of the Spirit. It was all the fullness of the Spirit resting upon Christ during his earthly ministry. And keep in mind, that was a very unique thing. In the Old Testament, Leading up to this time, we see different times where the Holy Spirit would temporarily come upon someone's life, maybe to speak a prophetic word, maybe to do ministry, and there are different times the Holy Spirit would come upon someone. It's not until the completion of Christ's entire sacrifice on the cross, resurrection, and ascension that you and I can now be indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and that happens at our conversion when we're born again. The Spirit enters inside of us, and He now resides within us and dwells within us, which is a beautiful, marvelous thing. Every believer has the Spirit dwelling inside of us. But I believe the Bible teaches, and here Christ Himself even experienced, and this was in connection to the preparation and enablement for His public ministry, that the Spirit also can come upon a person's life, that is to rest upon them for enablement and in order to give to them special grace and power to walk in the will of God, to serve God's purposes in their life. And even we see Jesus here having all the fullness of the Spirit resting upon his life in this moment. 
he says that this spirit gave Jesus not only the complete representation of Yahweh God, but also it was the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Wisdom is the practical application of knowledge. So it's the ability to have facts or have information, but be able to take that information and make good, wise, practical decisions. Some people can have a lot of knowledge and be very smart, and they have no common sense, right? They have no wisdom. Other people can have a whole lot of wisdom, and they, quite honestly, may not be very smart at all, but yet they may be very wise. And, and wisdom, as we saw in our study through the book of Proverbs, is the application of how to live life well. It's how to process decisions, think beyond the moment, how to judge things, use prudence and discernment, and, and just to handle things in a wise manner with decisions and behavior and all the different areas of life that would, in a sense, encompass. So Jesus had great wisdom as the Spirit rested upon him, and you see that through the Gospels, the incredible wisdom he would operate in, as well as the Spirit granted special understanding, that is a perception, he was able to understand matters about individuals and to operate in a degree of understanding and discernment. The Spirit resting upon Jesus' life caused him also to be able to give great counsel in the midst of the time of his earthly ministry. Remember we saw earlier back in Isaiah chapter 9 as it was describing Jesus there, it said not only that he was wonderful, but he would also be counselor. And so Jesus enabled to give wonderful counsel, to give advice and guidance in regards to things. The Spirit brought might or supernatural power and enablement, and we see through the miracles of Jesus, the mighty God working uh, through him in a sense and, and demonstrating the great might and power of God's divine strength, as well as knowledge, that is, Christ had full knowledge of everything, and we'll see that in our verses ahead, that there was never anything that Jesus did not know. He had complete knowledge of everything and everyone at all times as well as the fear of the Lord. That is just a general sense of reverence, desiring to honor the Father. And even as the next verse indicates to us that his delight was the fear of the Lord. That is that there was nothing Jesus enjoyed or desired to do more than to please the Father. He lived in a manner where his greatest joy was to simply bring pleasure to the Father, and he lived in complete obedience to the Father's will and reverenced the Father with his entire earthly life, living out that existence as the perfect man in the way that you and I can't and never will. Now, before we move on from this, let me just say by way of encouragement how wonderful that the Bible tells us that this same Jesus who came, John said of him, I baptize you with water, but then he said of Jesus, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with power. The Bible tells us that when the disciples were speaking to Jesus and asking about when the kingdom of God was going to come to pass, that Jesus told them, Acts chapter 1, he said, tarry here in the city of Jerusalem, and then he told them, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. At the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus tells them to tarry or to wait in Jerusalem until they're endowed with power from on high, referring to the Spirit coming upon their life. And how wonderful that the same Spirit who rested upon Jesus to enable him as he lived out his human life among us to serve and to be effective, 
that that same Spirit is now freely able to come upon our lives. The Holy Spirit dwells within every one of us, and subjectively, He's working in us to help us to overcome sin, to feel conviction when we do what's wrong. He causes us to recognize His Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and there are all these wonderful ministries of the Holy Spirit working inside the believer But the Bible is, to me, very clear that there is a subsequent experience of the Spirit of God coming upon the life of a child of God who asks for such, where Jesus himself, who had the Spirit come upon him, is now the baptizer and the one who can also baptize us in the power of the Holy Spirit so that these very same things can be freely available to us to better be a witness of the Lord to better represent Jesus, to have supernatural wisdom in regards to navigating things, to have greater discernment and understanding, to be more gifted, to offer counsel, to have might and power as supernatural dynamic, a dynamic of God's spirit, to operate in his power, to have knowledge from the Lord and to live a life that's reverent and living in the fear of the Lord. And what a wonderful thing to be able to have that in our weak lives. I mean, it's one thing to have the Holy Spirit working within us, but to know that he also can rest upon our life and empower us is a wonderful thing. And I just encourage you, you know, do your own study. But to me, it is a wonderful, wonderful offering that God displays to me very clearly in the word of God. And as Jesus experienced such, as we now are in right relationship with Jesus, I believe that same spirit of the Lord can rest upon us and cause a very unique and different dynamic in our Christian experience. Again, we all have the Spirit in salvation, but I believe God offers us something where the Spirit can rest upon our life with anointing and power and bring a more beautiful and effective dynamic in our Christian experience and ministry. So Jesus experienced this. Verse 3, going on to speak about him as the Messiah, it says, "...and his delight is in the fear of the Lord." And he shall not judge by sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So this describes how Jesus, with the Spirit resting upon him, that he he came as the Messiah, that his ability to use discretion and discernment as he would judge things was from the Spirit's enablement and as the Son of God living amongst humanity that when Jesus made judgments on matters, notice that he was not limited in the way that we often make judgments and many times wrong judgments as human beings. It tells us here of Jesus and his ability to make judgments as the Messiah that he doesn't judge just by the sight of the eyes and the hearing of the ears. In other words, Jesus is aware of all. Jesus doesn't just look at how things are circumstantially. That's a way of making an observation. You kind of, you look at something and, and you have your, your, let me emphasize again, your perception of how it looks from your angle and your viewpoint. And then sometimes we judge by what we hear or what we've heard of a particular matter. And so we go by the way it looks to us and what we've heard, but what we always tend to fail to remember is that's still not all the details. There may be things that we don't see. 
There may be things that we are not aware of, that we haven't heard all the details, all the facts, and because of that, we can often make wrong judgments about people, about situations. But with Jesus, how wonderful, he had full awareness of everything. He knew everything that was true in every situation. He had the full facts on every person beyond just looking at an individual and what they said or did. Jesus could see the motive of the heart. He could see into every life and was fully aware. And because of that, he doesn't make surface decisions. He makes clear, accurate judgments. And that's why it says, with righteousness, he shall judge and decide with equity the meek of the earth. And look, I think this is something that, again, why when we're making certain judgments and situations, sometimes it would be wise not only to slow down and to even observe some of what the Proverbs tell us, where, again, Proverbs tell us things like, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it's a folly and a shame to him. Sometimes we don't take the time to hear all the facts or sometimes gather all the facts. Or one man sounds right, the Proverbs say, until his neighbor comes and cross-examines him. And then you realize, oh, there's actually three sides of this story. There's his side, her side, and then there's the truth. Or there's his side, his side, and then there's probably the truth somewhere in between those two things. And Jesus, thankfully, is able to fully know those things. And look, that's why when we are making judgments and, and decisions, folks, one of the wisest things we can do is go to Jesus and say, Lord, you know things that I don't know. You've seen things that nobody's seen. You hear and are aware of things, and you see people's hearts. Lord, would you reveal things to me that I need to know? I don't want to make a wrong decision, Lord. I want to make a righteous judgment. I don't want to decide wrongly. I want to be just and equitable, Lord. So please, you see things, show me things that I need to know. And how wonderful that Jesus is so much different than us in the way that he's able to make his judgments. Now, as he goes on, I believe here in verse 4 and moves down through the remainder of the chapter, it seems that a shift in the focus happens where, remember, we've talked about how there's the near and far fulfillment concept in prophecy. And so in some senses, it seems now that Isaiah, as you can tell the language, is looking beyond just the earthly, li uh, earthly life of Jesus when he came as a humble Messiah and Savior, and now looking all the way further down, down into what we would think of as the time of the second coming of Christ, and then his kingdom age when he'll rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years as he, in what we call the millennium, sets up his kingdom upon the earth after Jesus returns back to the earth in his second coming. Now, as he goes on in verse 4, speaking about Jesus making righteous judgments, certainly I think this will apply at the return of Christ as well. The prior part of verse 4, that he in righteousness judges and decides with equity, but verse 4, the second half of it, he shall strike the earth with, look what he says, the rod of his mouth. The idea is his rod is a, an instrument of discipline or judgment. And with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. So describing how Jesus, with his spoken word as judge, judging with complete righteousness, no error in any way, that when he comes, he will someday strike the earth and with the breath of his lips slay and deal with the wicked and bring judgment against the wicked by simply the word of his mouth. Again, if we read uh, Revelation chapter 19, we're studying through Revelation on Sunday morning, but when we get there, we'll see that when Jesus comes back at his second coming, 
that it tells us that the, 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 the sword of the word of the Lord comes out of his mouth and he instantaneously destroys the Antichrist and all those in rebellion to him when he comes back in his second coming. That just by the spoken word of his mouth, just the breath of his mouth, such power, the Lord can speak the word and instantly he slays the wicked and eliminates his enemies. The picture here is that when Christ comes back in his second coming, and then as he reigns on earth for a thousand years, Psalm 2 and other places make it very evident to us that Jesus's reign will be a complete authoritarian reign. There will be no rebellion. No one will be able. It will be enforced righteousness. With just his spoken word, Jesus will be able to defeat his enemies as he comes back and reigns upon the earth Verse 5 tells us, and righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. So picturing Jesus here, again, the, the belt was often what everything else was attached to. So if a soldier was wearing armor, the sword, the breastplate, everything tied in to the central spot of the belt here. And here he describes Jesus at the center of everything that Jesus is righteous, and he will operate in righteousness and faithfulness, that is, that he follows through, that he's reliable, and that everything he does, he carries it out to completion and at the center of everything that Jesus has done, will do, and will always do. There will be righteousness and faithfulness. The idea is just reminding us there, you can always, as you tie those two terms together, you can always rely upon this. Jesus will always do what's right. You can count on that. He's faithful, and in his faithfulness, Jesus always has and always will do what is right. We in our limited minds sometimes may not understand maybe why the Lord did something, what, but here's what you can rest in. Jesus will always do what's right. Again, one of the things they're saying around the throne of God in heaven, righteous and true, faithful, are all your ways. Lord, everything you did, it was right. And somehow when we get into eternity, I believe when our flesh is gone and we're in glorified bodies and then we see everything clearly that we're gonna go, that was right, Lord. Man, that thing that I questioned on earth for so long, it, it actually was righteous. What you did there was right and you were faithful and it tied into the overall purposes of God's ultimate plans now, as he comes to verse 6 down through verse 9, he begins to describe some of the environment of the kingdom age. Beautiful, beautiful descriptions of what will begin to transpire on the earth when Christ is reigning for those thousand years. Look what he says. The wolf will also dwell with the lamb. Now, that's very uncommon, right? Because typically, wolves find dinner from lambs. But can you tell there's been a complete reversal here now? The very nature of creation itself, the animal kingdom, is transformed. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Again, these are predator and prey right now. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. So calves and cows and ferocious lions, wolves and lamb. Again, these predator and prey, which typically the predator would instantly devour and destroy the prey. All of a sudden now, there's this, this miraculous transition and change in the inward nature of these creatures where now they can dwell together in peace and harmony. They're not interested in destroying or harming or devouring one another. The cow and the bear shall graze. 
Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. So very interesting, perhaps in the kingdom age, that the animal kingdom, it seems, will almost revert back to no longer perhaps being carnivores, maybe reverting back to as things were in the Paradise Eden initially, where they weren't carnivores, they weren't devouring one another, but that they actually were perhaps vegetarian in in what they were eating. We we don't certainly know if that's the case, but what is very evident in verses 6 through 9 that's being conveyed here is that you can tell that in the kingdom age, there is this reversal of everything that the curse caused when it came upon the earth, right? In Genesis chapter 3, when man rebelled against God, not only did man die spiritually and the relationship with God get interrupted, but the curse of sin came upon all of creation. So everything that we see now in the creation itself, Romans 8 describes this. Remember, Romans 8 says how creation itself is groaning, yearning, creation itself, the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, yearning for the liberation that will one day come when the sons of God are liberated as well and the curse is lifted and God reverses everything that the curse of sin brought upon the entire planet, not just humanity. And here we can see this reversal of the curse now that animals are not aggressive towards one another. They're dwelling together in harmony. They're not predators trying to devour one another. They're dwelling together in peacefulness and harmony. God has changed the nature of these ferocious animals. They're no longer harming other animals. Verse 8 says, the nursing child, now look at this, pretty interesting. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand into the viper's nest. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So again, these poisonous vipers, here you have a little nursing child, a toddler, and it says that that child is no longer threatened or endangered to be next to the den of one of these vipers, one of these cobras can play. It says, put his hand down into the viper's nest, play in the cobra's hole. Now again, Interesting, the cobra is not attacking the child. I don't know if the child would destroy the cobra. I've seen some little ones get pretty wild with stuff, you know, grabbing a hold of the the snake at that point. Probably they're more the predator at that point. But the interesting thing to take note of is, is notice that in the kingdom age, everything that's been harmful and destructive and that has been a threat to all of humanity, all of that's reversed. There's no concern anymore for the welfare of everyone's safety. I mean, we live in a day and an age now, not with with things like that where we're worried about something, you know, a snake, a poisonous snake harming a child, but all the effects of the curse upon humanity that's caused all the, the cruel, barbaric, destructive, dangerous things that exist on this planet. And imagine there is a time in the kingdom age where everybody's safe. No one's threatened anymore. There are no longer anything, not only in animal creation, but even the nature of of mankind. Imagine. Imagine dwelling on the earth as Christ is reigning, and not just animals become peaceful and docile, and they're no longer wanting to hurt or harm, but imagine all of humanity, some of which today are animals, right? People who are barbaric and cruel those who do horrible, horrific things to other human beings, 
And that nature doesn't exist in humanity anymore. It's gone. Everyone now is dwelling in peacefulness and harmony in a sense that utopia that everyone's trying to build, which they'll never build on this earth because it's not going to come until the Prince of Peace comes to the earth and reigns and supernaturally lifts the curse, reverses everything, and institutes a change in the nature of every creature in all of creation, from humanity to the animal kingdom to everything. And again, why does that exist? They shall no longer hurt or destroy anymore. For the earth in that day shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. It's because everything and everyone has a knowledge of the Lord. That once everything and everyone fully acknowledges and knows the Lord and lives in that awareness, they function the way God intended everything to function. Not in this broken system that we have now, but really in this beautiful harmony, in a sense, to some degree, and I, I say it with a degree of, of trepidation, it's almost as if there is a, 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 a bringing back to the Eden-like environment that once existed before sin tainted and broke and cursed and ruined everything. And it's almost as if for a thousand years while Christ reigns, that will be brought back into existence, and we'll see some of these other passages throughout Isaiah and the other prophets describing this. Verse 10, he goes on to say, and in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse. Now notice, prior verse said that Jesus was the, the, the branch or the stem coming out of Jesse, remember? Now look what he says, in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse. So Jesus not only is the branch and the extension of Jesse or David's line in his humanity, but in his divinity, he's also the root itself. Because as the son of God and the eternally existent one, Jesus is the root and the source in his divinity and in his humanity, he's the shoot or the branch or the offspring from Jesse or from David's family line. In that day, there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, a sign, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So again, there would be this great change where not only just is God working among the Jewish nation, but Christ would bring a great work of the Spirit where Jew and Gentile would begin to both see him as Messiah. The rejection of Messiah of the Jews would open the doorway to the Gentiles to seek Christ as well, to come to know him. And it shall come to pass, verse 11, in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time, I have that underlined, notice, the second time, to recover the remnant of his people who are left. And then he describes different territories on the earth from where they had been scattered from time to time, from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam, which is often what we know as common day area of Iran and Shinar from Hamath and the islands of the sea. And he will set up a banner for the nations and assemble, look what he says, verse 12, assemble all the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed, the diaspora, those who've been dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now, we know that Israel, the Jewish people at one time were dispersed and scattered when the Babylonian captivity happened. They came they were taken out of their land. They were dispersed throughout the territory of Babylon. And then ultimately, as we saw in the, the study that we went through together in the time of, of Ezra and Nehemiah, 
God stirred the hearts of the pagan kings. They were allowed after the 70 years of captivity to return back to their homeland, and a small remnant came back to the land. God drew them back. They began to rebuild the walls of the city to rebuild the temple of God itself, and they began to be regathered. And that was, a, in a sense, a first time when God brought the remnants who were dispersed back. But notice the Bible's telling us here that in that day, a second time, verse 11, in other words, there's a second regathering, God's describing, of the Jewish people coming from the four corners of the earth, from assembling the outcasts of Israel back as they've been dispersed away from the four corners of the earth. And look, I believe that a part of that, and I'm not saying the fullness, but a part of that has already began in a second regathering back to the land. Again, a second time the Jews were technically, you might say, dispersed around 70 AD under the Roman Empire. The Jews at that time when Jerusalem was, you know, the temple was destroyed and, and the Roman Empire, in a sense, dispersed and pushed many of the Jews out of their homeland historically. And over a period of a number of centuries, it looked like that Israel would never regain their homeland. But in around the late 1800s, you have the really early kind of strong beginnings of the Zionist movement, which built and got momentum. And then, of course, ultimately in 1948, when Israel reestablished themselves as a nation in their homeland once again. And there was this beginning of this, I believe, what the Bible prophesies here in Isaiah and in other places, where a second time God would begin to regather back the outcasts of Israel that had been dispersed out of their land, that from the four corners of the earth, he would begin to bring them back to their land in preparation for ultimately, it does seem that when Christ comes back a second time, there will be an even greater in gathering that we're beginning to see the first early fruits of that now, as we're watching the nation of Israel having Jews make Aliyah or returning back from the four corners of the earth back to their land and ultimately in preparation for a great, if you would, almost like a second exodus where God regathers his people, brings them back into the promised land during the time when Christ will come and reign. Again, Jesus speaks about this in Mark chapter 13 and Matthew uh, 24 and 25. He speaks of some of these same kind of things here, where as a part of the reign of Christ, there will be this great gathering back of all the Jews to their homeland. Verse 13 also, he says, the envy of Ephraim, which again is often a reference to the northern kingdom, as we've said, shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, so the north, no longer an animosity towards the south. Judah shall no longer harass Ephraim in the north. The idea is that harmony is now being restored back. Again, when Christ comes, he would bring a harmony again. Among his people, they'd no longer be divided, but they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east and lay their hand on Edom and Moab. Now, these were perpetual enemies of Israel, often conquering them. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. So notice he's describing here how there is a coming time when God will bring a great exaltation of the nation of Israel, where nations that at one time had great animosity and hatred towards them and were like constant thorns, even as today, there are constant enemies who hate Israel even in this present day, 
that at this time there will be this exaltation of Israel where those people will submit to them and they will be a favored nation in that chosen status as Jesus returns back and sets up his throne there at Jerusalem and Mount Zion. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt with his mighty wind. He will shake his fist over the river. Now, whenever you see the river like that separated, it's often a reference to the Euphrates River, and strike it with seven streams and make men cross over dry shod. So the picture here is a, is a analogy of ease of travel. In other words, God's drying up the river. God's doing whatever it takes to give access to his people to easily return back. God's making a way for them to cross over, again, even as God did with the Red Sea, with the Jordan River, God taking a situation where there was no way and God making a clear, simple passageway, drying up the, the passage so that they can have ease of travel and access. And there will be, verse 16, a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in that day he came up from the land of Egypt. So again, drawing the picture of how God brought them out of Egypt, delivered them out of their bondage and their suffering, brought them on a highway into the land of Israel that they now, in a sense, live in, and really what was the promised land when God first gave it to them as their inheritance, and how God will, in a sense, one day make a way once again. You're going to notice this phrase in Isaiah, there will be a highway. That becomes a a favorite phrase of Isaiah in his prophecy, chapter 35, if you want to glance ahead there at some point, he describes this beautiful description of the kingdom age there, this wonderful highway of the Lord. And, and, and the analogy here that Isaiah is really trying to draw is how God would make a way of great ease when it looked like there wasn't a way to get his people back into the land. He's done it before, he'll do it again, and he'll do it as many times as he needs to because I think here's perhaps the point the Holy Spirit is driving home to us is God always knows how to make a way. Does he not? God always makes a way. God can create a highway in the middle of a desert. God can take the Red Sea where it looks like there is, God, I know that there's just no way, but God can part a sea God can part the Jordan, God parted the Red Sea to get Israel out of a situation, and God parted the Jordan to bring Israel into the situation that he wanted to bring in. And God can do the same in our lives. God can always make a way. In the same way God has the power to change the nature of an animal, to change it, God has the power to make a way and to move us forward into what he wants for us in all of our lives. Now, let's just quickly go through chapter 12. It kind of connects, and we can move through it rather quickly to finish it up. It says, and in that day, of course, we're in the same theme, the, the day you, Israel, will say, O oh Lord, I praise you. Though you were angry with me, in a sense, God had displeasure towards Israel. They had rebelled against him, and every time they turned against him, they incurred the, the judgment of the Lord when he, they forsook God as a people. Though you were angry with me, he's personifying Israel, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. So again, Israel for a time experienced God's anger, but his anger lingered for a short period of time, but ultimately God's comfort came to his people as he would again have mercy upon them when they would cry out to him. And here Isaiah says, 
Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. And so many times when Israel would get themselves into a jam, when their sin would cause them to suffer and they would incur the displeasure and the anger of God, when they would cry out to the Lord, the same God that was their disciplinarian would instantly become their comforter. And then he would be merciful to them. And not only would he become their comforter and he would be merciful to them in the midst of their failures when they humbled themselves, but then he would become their deliverer. And he would step in and he would intervene and get them out of the problem or the, you know, uh, the imprisonment that they were in and the, all the jam that they got themselves into. And Isaiah describes here twice how God is my salvation. He says the end of verse 2, I won't be afraid, he says, because God has become my salvation. God became so many times the salvation and deliverance that Israel needed. And look, when we consider that, how much more is that true for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that God himself has become my salvation, that Yahweh God himself, he didn't just send salvation, God became our salvation. God himself took on human flesh, lived as a man, the sinless, perfect life you and I can't live, and he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law in himself, and then he stepped into our place and he sacrificed for our sins and was punished for our sins dying on the cross. And God didn't just provide salvation. God became our salvation. Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh is salvation. God himself became our very Savior. The New Testament says that oftentimes, God, our Savior. What an amazing thing to realize that God loves us that much and that he would go to such an extent to save our souls from sin and hell, and how because of that, despite we fail and at times incurs even the displeasure of God ourselves, that we can know that he is ready to comfort us, that we can trust his salvation. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to live in fear. In fact, he goes on to say, verse 3, therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The Hebrew is literally from the springs, the, the continuous springs of salvation, that you have this one source and it's such a strong source, it sends forth many springs of water coming forth. And he says that with joy, we could draw from the wells of salvation. And again, as we think of that in regards to Jesus and for you and I today, John chapter 4, remember Jesus speaks to the woman, the Samaritan woman, and he tells her, if you drink from that water, you'll thirst again. But anyone who drinks of the water that I give from him will never thirst. The idea is it would bring complete satisfaction. In John chapter 7, Jesus again, speaking there, talks, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink, and out of his innermost being would gush forth torrents of living water. And so again, we have this same analogy of the, the ministry of the Spirit coming from our Lord Jesus Christ and how from Jesus we can draw from the wells of his salvation continually joy. Notice, not happiness, joy. Because those are two completely different things. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentle, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, we, we know the list, but it doesn't say happiness. Happiness means it's dependent upon my circumstance, happenstance. If my circumstances are what I want, I'm happy. If an hour later my circumstances change, I'm not happy anymore. Now I'm not happy. 
But joy is a supernatural work of the Spirit of God that gives an inner sense of pleasure and delight and contentment that can say, even if circumstances aren't good, I can still find joy in the Lord. I can draw from a deeper source from the wells of salvation. And listen, if you know what Jesus Christ has done for you, the forgiveness of your sins, and that you're not going to hell to suffer forever in eternity in a lake of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, life can have its curveballs, it can have its tremendous hardships and its difficulties, but you can draw joy from the wells of understanding his salvation and saying, yes, my life is very hard right now. This is a tragedy or this is a difficulty or this is very hard and it's not pleasant, but you know what? I can do what Paul says, I can rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to heaven still, man. My sins aren't forgiven. God's not angry with me. I'm in right relationship with God. I have peace from the Lord. And here he describes how we can draw from the wells of his salvation joy that comes from him. And what does that joy prompt us to do? Well, it prompts us as it would Israel, and it should prompt us to praise him. And in that day, you will say, praise the Lord. Call upon his name. Declare his deeds among the peoples. Make mention of his name that it is exalted. So again, that joy that we draw, the joy that the Jews would draw as they saw Jesus come and provide salvation, as they see Jesus come back the second time. And at first, they look upon him who they've pierced, Isaiah says, and they realize, oh my goodness, we've rejected the Messiah. But then as God begins to save Israel and this wonderful spiritual revival happens, as the Bible describes, among the nation of Israel, there will be an incredible revival supernaturally, and they will find themselves, as described here, drawing joy from the wells of his salvation, realizing the one they rejected was actually their savior, and he's come back to offer them an incredible opportunity of forgiveness and salvation and the crumbing of Christ, and they will be calling upon his name and declaring his deeds and making mention of his name. In verse 5, he says, sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out, the prophet says to his people, and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, referring to those there in the area of Israel, for great is the Holy One of Israel. Notice that last phrase, in your midst, because that will be true in that day. Jesus will literally be in their midst. Ruling reign in the very presence of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ will be in their midst. And he says, man, this is a time to sing to the Lord, to cry out and to shout. I love what verse 5 says. He says that they will recognize he has done excellent things. And can you imagine how that reality will set in for the Jews when Christ returns and begins to work among them favorably once again as his chosen people and look, as we think of this in regards to ourselves, one of the reasons we should want to sing to the Lord and cry out to the Lord is we as well can recognize those same things, that he has done excellent things just in this room, in this group of people right here, 
There are stories and testimonies of the reality of God being in our midst among our lives, and he has done some pretty excellent things in my life and in your lives, and that should cause us to have joy and to praise him. Let's stand together.